You are listening to the EdTech Takeout from Grantwood AEA, an educational service agency that supports school districts in eastern Iowa with a focus on equity, excellence, and efficiency in education for all children. Welcome to episode 46 of the EdTech Takeout, the podcast that serves up bite-sized technology tips for teachers. My name is Jonathan Wiley, and I am joined today, as always, by Mindy Kearney. Hi. How are you doing, Mindy? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. Are you good. getting ready for summer yet? I am. I have been summering. You've been, been summering? I've been summering for like the last three weeks already. But we came back for for the podcast today. We did, yeah. Yeah, just to throw You're in welcome. one You're welcome. more for the, before one the more. summer. Yeah, one more before the summer. Yeah. You're, uh, you're someone that likes to... Uh, Enjoy their summers. Is that fair to say? I am. Yes. I yeah. I love summer. It's my favorite season. I live all year for summer. Mm-hmm. You're solar powered. I am solar powered for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, and that's true. Well, let's do some news and follow up. Okay. So, new Padlet feature. It feels like we do one of these every episode. I don't know. Isn't it? I know. I don't know how to feel about Padlet, but now they have this new um, feature called Cat Scan. And so you can use your um, actual post-it notes, put them up on the wall, and then scan it, and it will pull your post-it notes into a Padlet all its own. Which is fun. Yeah. It is kind of fun. I think there used to be like a did there used to be like a post-it app post-it that did app something that did similar. The same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But if you've already got things in your or you start in an analog and you want to finish digitally so you can share and collaborate with other mm-hmm. people, then yeah. that's a useful feature. It is. Yeah. And free. Yeah. I don't <laughs> for the, for the number one of boards that you, that you are entitled yes, to. Yes. Depending on how many you get. Right. Yeah. That's kind of a fun thing, though. It's just in beta, though. Yes? I hear, yes, experimental. Yeah. So, um, oh, yeah. Okay. It might be a little Oh, buggy, it only works in the mobile app. Yes. Which kind of makes sense, I guess. Yes. You. Yeah. Probably harder to make it work on a Chromebook or mm-hmm. a laptop of some sort. Maybe yeah. it will come to those. Maybe. Yeah, you can just hold up a piece of paper with post-it notes on it Ooh, and yeah. scan mm-hmm. them all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next. Uh, next on the list here, I've got, uh, you can now officially transfer those classic Google sites oh, classic into Google new sites. Google sites. Mm-hmm. I, w- I was reading this uh, recently and I was starting to think, at what point do we stop calling them the new Google Sites and just start calling it Google Sites? Google Sites again, yeah. Well, they've been around for a year for certain, right? The yeah, new yeah, Google I think so. Sites? Yeah, I think it's been a year. But I think even Google calls them now. They, they, their their blog post says how to ch- change your classic Google Site into a new Google Site. And yeah. So this is something that's already been around for Gmail users, mm-hmm. but it's slowly rolling out to school domains now. And you go into the settings, hit manage sites, and click the button that says convert to new mm, sites. Well, that's tricky. Mm. It's kind of interesting what they do with some of that, though, because, you know, if you had like a file cabinet page before, yeah. it sucks up all those files and puts them in a Google Drive folder and it embeds does? the folder on the page. It does? Yeah, it does some smart stuff it like that. It embeds the folder? Yes, the Google Drive folder. It embeds it? Yeah, on a page on your Google site in really? the new one. Yeah. Oh. You know how you can do like insert drive, new folder, yeah, and yeah. that good stuff. So. Oh. so they're doing some nice things to try and get around how sites used to be laid out as to how they could be laid out now. So take a look at those. Yeah, for sure. Uh, also new in Google Sites. Yeah. But this is in the new Google Sites. Not the classic. Not the classic. The new. Because you could do this in the classic, but in the new Google Sites, you can now duplicate a Google Site. 
So you can click the three dots in the top right-hand corner mm-hmm. and select duplicate to create a copy. I just had somebody ask me about this recently yeah. because in the classic Google sites, <laughs> yes. you used to be able to make a template yeah. and people could use your template yep. and all that kind of good yes, stuff. So right. I think the closest we're going to get to templates now is duplicating an original one yes. and just keep that original like untouched. And then Can you share your duplicate with someone else though? Like, So you'd make a duplicate yeah. for them. Yeah. And add them as a... So you make a Google site and you would basically make that, this is my template, inverted commas, right. and then make a copy and other people could have that. So Right on. All right. So I also saw that Google Expeditions added an AR feature. Yes. So what do you think? I think it's very interesting. I yeah. had a quick play with it. It's not something that's going to work on all phones. So I believe it is available in iOS and in Android, although I've only tested the iOS one. Yeah. On iOS side, you need um, ARKit, which mm-hmm. we've talked about before. Yeah. And the way it works is they've got these, um, they're not so much tours as such anymore, but mm-hmm. um, they're virtual objects that you can place on a table or some kind of flat surface. And yep. so I had a, like a, a cannon from a Spanish galleon from the spanish armada and uh had that on my kitchen floor when i was testing this out and you can literally walk all around it zoom in or just go really close to the object and far back from the object and it's it is kind of surreal to think you know that's not actually there on my kitchen floor so how's the quality of it Quality's good. good. I mean, yeah. yeah, definitely the ones that they've started with so far. Um, the other one I, I saw, they've got one on bees and beehives and mm. bee anatomy and yeah. all this kind of stuff. So I think that could be really interesting for yeah. science. And yeah. this is all just built into the um, Expeditions app. Right. They have a tag on there for AR. So yeah. if you just search for AR, yeah. you'll find a whole bunch of things that oh, are nice. tagged with AR. Okay. Um, so some of the devices... Uh, that people have for their expeditions kit will be able to use these. Others may not be able to take advantage of these yet, mm-hmm. but it's definitely right. it's some of those newer frameworks that you need in there. But yep. yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. We're going to have mm. to talk about it in our Google Expeditions class. In, yeah, uh, I was just going to say, so if you're interested in that, we are hosting a Google Expeditions class. I'm going to I'm going to stab at the date and say it's August 10th. Um, and if you're interested in taking that here at Grant Wood, you can definitely look at our professional development site. Um and we're, we'll be talking about it those days, too. We'll have a little bit more information then. Link to that in the show notes. Sure. Sounds great. All right. Well, Apple just had their WWDC. What's that stand for? That's their Worldwide Developer Conference. Oh, okay. Conference, which I don't follow at all. I just wait until you tell us what's going on. But it was nothing exciting. Well, there was nothing in there specifically for educators. Right. Because they had that spring event that we talked yeah. about back in, yep. was that March or something? Yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah, um, but I wanted to uh, bring a couple of things out just to uh, bring to your attention. Okay. That was, uh, they talked a little bit, kind of like Google did at their conference, Mm -hmm. on digital health. And uh, they have new features coming to iOS 12, like setting app limits for yourself or for your kids. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my kids have got... um, Amazon Kindle Fire tablets. They don't use yeah, it very right. much anymore, but that's yeah. one of the features they have in there you mm-hmm. can see. Right. So you can spend 30 minutes in this app, but there is no limit to how many books you can read right. and things like that. Yeah. So, right. um, And they've got it there for like, you know, parents for their kids, uh-huh. but also I think for individuals because, you know, it gives you data on like how many times you pick up your phone. Oh. 
in a day? Yeah. I don't know if I want to see that. Day I don't want to know. Mm-mm. I know. And, you know, to think about, you know, well, and it gives you like how long you spend in each app yeah. and on a day and things like that and yeah. make you think about, well, maybe I should my put some going? limits on myself. Mm-hmm. I'm spending too much time on Twitter or yeah. Voxer or whatever mm-hmm. else. And Voxer, yes. You know, as we're coming into the summer months yeah. here, I'm wondering if that's something you would use, Mindy. Yeah, I am an unplugger you, in the summer. You do like to go off the grid a bit, I don't do you? I do go off the grid. So um, I have been really good. Actually, I turned off all my email notifications on my phone um, this summer, which I've never done before. Mm. And that's been super nice. So I've checked my email like once every three days just to make sure nothing from work is like... You know, like occasionally we get emails from teachers over the summer and stuff. Not real often, but I hate to have those go unanswered. So I'll go in and check occasionally. But um, that's super nice. And I also turned off the team boxer notifications. Yeah. So the thing I noticed about it is when I first got my Apple Watch, I totally set down my phone. And I don't pick it up as much as I used to, although I I still pick it up a ton. Um, But turning off those notifications means I also turn off on my watch. So... I'm like notification free right now. Mm, look at you. on my watch. Proud of you, Mindy. I know, except for like text messages. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this stuff's all coming to iOS 12 in the yeah. fall with a bunch of other new features on there that we'll maybe talk about near the time. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I thought that was an interesting thing to think about digital health and yeah. how much we use our devices these right. days because it's a lot. It is a lot. Mm-hmm. More than I'd like to admit. I know. Me too. So speaking of Apple, though. Yeah. We have a very special guest today. We do. Yeah. Should we get to it? Yeah. He spent a large part of his career working for Apple, so we probably shouldn't keep him waiting waiting any longer. Okay. Let's do it. All right. All right. Up for our main course today, we have John Couch, Apple's first vice president of education. He was recruited by Steve Jobs in 1978 and was Apple's 54th employee. John has always been a proponent of personalized learning and is the co-author of Rewiring Education, How Technology Can Unlock Every Student's Potential. So welcome, John. We're so happy to have you here. It's my pleasure. So, John, uh, you were the 54th employee at Apple. Can you tell us how that came to be and what kind of led you down the road um, to Apple's vice president of education? Sure. Um, Actually, my boss at Hewlett-Packard, which was my first job out of of UC Berkeley as a computer science major, uh, joined Apple as VP of engineering and recognized that Apple was going to need some software experience and set up a luncheon meeting between Steve and I, and um, we hit it off pretty well. Uh, Steve shared with me his vision for Apple Computer, the why, and that centered around an article that he had read in Scientific America where they had measured the efficiency of motion from for man and animal and found that man was a disappointing uh, in their performance, but someone had the foresight to rerun the test, this time with man riding a bicycle, which amplified their physical ability. So Steve saw technology as a mental bicycle, um, as an amplifier for our intellect, not to take us where we've already been, but to allow us to explore, to create, to innovate. Um, and, you know, I identified with that, being one of the first 50 computer scientists in the United States, and working on co- computers that cost a quarter million dollars. Um, 
you know, looking at Steve's $2,500 computer, uh, I could see the future. How have you seen Apple's commitment to education evolve over those years? Because you, I mean, you start to talk about those quarter million dollar computers we had, <laughs> and now we're in the the state where you know classrooms have like dozens of these. So, yeah, how has that evolved in in your mind and the things that you've seen? Well, I think it you know it initially started with Steve's vision. Uh, Steve saw uh, education as uh, an opportunity. Uh, I think he was quoted once and said, if I could put one computer in a school and one student would find that computer, it would change their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Steve Steve had a real commitment to education, particularly K through 12. Um, I actually retired in 84 and uh, spent the next 10 years uh, rebuilding a school in North County, San Diego. And that's really how I came back to Apple because when Steve came back, um, he invited me back as uh, to fix education in his in his mind. So I came back in 2002, and so up until May 8th, the last 16 years, my responsibility has been to build the education business, which we grew to almost 10 billion dollars. I mean, yeah, you used a phrase there, which uh, reminds me of um, something that we we hear sometimes when we talk about using technology in in schools and that is the idea that when we add technology to a classroom that it's going to fix something to do with with our education to fix something that wasn't there before so it's going to like you know fix our test scores or student engagement or behavior and and all that kind of thing and i think you you talk about this in in your book uh, rewiring education that technology is just one piece of that puzzle um, what kind of advice do you have for, um, you know, for schools that might be, you know, looking for that quick win and, you know, how to make technology part of like that big picture? Well, first and foremost, you know, there's a symbiotic relationship between technology content and pedagogy and throwing a device uh, at a problem without addressing the complete challenge uh isn't going to get you the desired outputs. Uh, uh, Dr. Putendera, who's worked with the Maine Learning Initiative since 2002, uh, has created a model called SAMR model that said technology can be used as a substitution. In other words, you're going to do the same thing you've always done and nothing more, or it can be an augmentation, modification, or finally redefinition. Very few schools have used technology to redefine the classroom, right? Majority of technology um, is simply being used as a substitution, and in that case, mm-hmm. in that case, you are you're not going to get different outcomes. Uh, if you go from uh, accessing content in a textbook to simply accessing content on the internet, yes, the content on the internet may be real time, but that's augmentation at the best. And so, unfortunately. We have not changed the pedagogy in schools. We have not trained the teachers uh, to uh, to be familiar with the, with the technology and the oncoming technologies, um, and therefore, the majority of schools are simply the pedagogy hasn't changed. It's still based on memorization. Now at Apple, we created a pedagogy called challenge based learning, which assumed that every student would have access to technology. And the framework became, one, the classroom needs to be relevant. 
It needs to mean something to the student, right? Not just memorize the Gettysburg Address. Um, right. Two, the classroom needs to be creative. That is, the, the, today's students need to be the creators of content, not just the consumers of content. The classroom or the project needs to be collaborative. Vygorsky's work says we learn from each other, you know, the zone of proximal development. When I went to school, collaboration was called cheating because every project I ever had was a single-person project. And finally, it needs to be challenging. The, the kids are capable of much, much more than we give them credit for. So I, I, the book really was a, the purpose of the book was to start a conversation that how do we change the pedagogy, which was defined by an essay in 1912, funded by Rockefeller, to produce factory workers, to where we are today, to much more relevant challenging, creative, collaborative classroom. So what's your magic wand? <laughs> How do we fix those things? I think it's a number of things. You know, first and foremost, uh, we, we need to stop. We need to realize that it's not about the box, that it's about the ecosystem that the box works in. So if you think of the iPod, what made the iPod successful? Right? It was the music store, a different way to collect you know, buy, listen to music. What made the phone successful? It was the app store, the ecosystem that that device operated in. So that's going to hold true as well for the iPad. What's the ecosystem that's going to recognize where a student's gaps are or where a student's strengths are and deliver to that student the appropriate learning activities so that they can reach their potential? Uh, secondly, I think we need to stop treating teachers as union workers and start to treat them as professionals that they are with ongoing professional development, just like an accountant or, you know, or financial individual gets. They need to be exposed to the new technologies that are forthcoming in terms of augmented reality, Internet 2.0, uh, even even block vision. You know, if Internet 1.0 connected people, Internet 2.0 connects things, but blockchain connects transactions. And so, you know, the teachers need to be exposed to these technologies because I guarantee you the students are. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you talked about creativity there as well. And I think you have this great quote from, from Steve Jobs where he says, uh, creativity is, is just connecting things. And I hadn't thought of it that way before, but the more I did think about that, I, that, that really resonated with me. And you, you talked about that in, uh, in relation to like the makers, makers, maker culture and maker spaces. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, it replies kind of universally. And so I was wondering if you had any tips or ideas on how we can help teachers become more creative with some of the things they're doing in the classroom or, or even to school administrators and how they can help teachers find time to be more creative. Yeah, I think that, you know, time is an issue and we'll probably talk a little bit more about that in terms of a fundamental flaw that's, I believe it's in our education system. But mm -hmm. it's interesting, when I, when I retired from Apple in 84 and spent the next 10 years in a K-12 through 12 school, I saw a ton of creativity in the lower grades. I mean, in the first right. grade, they had a supermarket in the back of the room. The kids learned you know, their math by, by doing relevant things. By the time it got to about sixth grade, uh, there, were no, there was no longer any creativity in the classroom. I think we have it backwards. I think the creativity needs to come from the students. 
So instead of having one person create something and then tell 30 students to duplicate it, I'd rather see 30 students, you know, or maybe six groups of five students or, you know, being the creative persons and the teacher guiding that, that creativity. And think about the technology today. They have, they have a studio. They have, they have a stage in terms of the Internet. They've got feedback from, from the audience. Uh, and they're always challenging themselves to, you know, to, to get better. Um, so I think the creativity needs to come from the students. Unfortunately, we have really, in a sense, banned that with our pedagogical model of memorization. You know, maker labs and some of these some of these new uh, opportunities, I, I believe, will get us in, into more creativity. I have a friend who's uh, really an expert in 3D printers, and he produced a pair of shoes, and he wore those shoes to school, and they told him he couldn't wear them. And then for graduation, he created himself his own bow tie with the 3D printer. Now, at least they let him wear his bow tie. But, you know, yeah. but we should be encouraging creativity Absolutely. rather than, you know, uh, penalizing it. Yeah, and I think you're right. We definitely see that the, the creativity sometimes does get less and less as we go through. My, my son's in kindergarten right now, and I, I look at all the fun things he's doing and all the creative opportunities, the stations, and, you know, my daughter's in fourth grade going into fifth grade, and I can already start to see some of that going away. And, you know, it's somewhere along the line we're missing something. So, <laughs> Well, part of the problem is um, we do not allow failure in school. And without failure, you're not going to get creativity. I mean, right. you've got to be able to to stretch yourself, to look at new ideas, new things, and not be afraid to fail, not be punished uh, by trying something new. And, and I, there's an example in my book about my son in, in 10th grade biology where he had to do a, a project, and he he was very interested in why – Frogs were showing up across the United States with multiple legs. Well, you know, when I told him there wasn't going to be any book in the library and the teacher didn't know the answer to that and the fact that there may be a failure in taking that on as his as his uh, project, you know, he was willing to do that. And he, he could have failed. Unfortunately, he actually found the reason for the deformed frogs and published it as a 10th grader only to find out about 90 days later that Yale University was awarded a $2.6 million grant to study the reason for deformed frogs, and the answer, <laughs> the answer was on the Internet by a 10th grader. That's, wow. That's that, awesome. I think that's a perfect example of what we mean by challenge-based learning. It was relevant to him. He had to create. He had to travel. There, you know, he had to work collaboratively with some outside professors that could guide him to where he could find this information, and it was a challenge. Yeah, um, and you know, and that was to me was a true, true learning experience. And I give that teacher credit for allowing him to this the student to do something that the teacher didn't know the answer to. 
Yeah, exactly. There's um, there's a principal out in Philadelphia. I think his name is Chris Lehman. And uh, one of the things he said that always resonated with me was that when you're doing these PBL or CBL things, that if you as a teacher give that, assign that to students and you get back 30 of the same thing, then that's not a project. That's like a recipe you give the kids. Yep. And exactly. you should be encouraging them to, you know, be more creative and go out there and, you know, explore things that really they have a passion for finding the answers to. But that's sort of what I saw in the lower schools. The teacher was creative, but she was asking the kids, the 30 kids to do the same thing rather yeah. than, mm-hmm. rather than flipping that. Right. Um, you know, in the book I use an example, a lot of people get confused with project-based learning and challenge-based learning and, uh, and how did, how does it integrate into the standards? And so I use an example in the book, um, fourth grade, uh, uh, California history is taught in fourth grade. And typically what the teachers do is they they teach about uh, missions, nothing about presidios, missions. And the project is the kids are to build a mission out of sugar cubes. And, you know, I say if if the mission comes in anything other than sugar cubes, the parents build it. Unless it was in Minecraft, then you know the students built it, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so the, instead of that project, which takes no technology whatsoever, you the challenge is you're William Randolph Hearst. Kids are grouped in, in groups, and they go, well, who's William Randolph Hearst? Well, you need to discover that. I'm not delivering that to you. So they go and do their research, and they find that William Randolph Hearst was the owner of the San Francisco Examiner, and that he built Hearst Castle. And in doing so, he brought, you know, materials and animals from all over the world. So all of a sudden, you've gone outside of California and you've gone all over the world in understanding William Randolph Hearst. And that William Randolph Hearst, every weekend, entertained the Hollywood elite. And he had a long table, you know, with ketchup bottles in the middle of the table. Your challenge is you're going to throw a dinner party for those individuals in California who had the greatest impact on history. Who would you invite and what would the seating chart be like? So that's an example of a CBL project versus go build a mission out of sugar cubes. Because then you're going to have to decide, do you put, you know, Father Sierra next to a Presidio military person? You know, you're, it's just an incredible different learning environment. And I guarantee you the students will learn much more about California history than they will in the little amount that the publisher will put in the textbook to get approved by the state. I mean, the things that you're kind of describing and the creating and the, um, you know, making different things also brings us kind of back to our makerspace a little bit and talking about some of the things we might find in the makerspace. And we've had quite a few discussions on this podcast about coding, which I'm sure you're um, probably very passionate about. We're just kind of wondering... um, you know, what your views are with coding for students and challenging students in that way and other places around the world. Coding has definitely, I would say, um, received more attention than maybe here in the United States. Where do you stand on this debate? You know, should students just all have experience with code? Should they be really diving into code? Where do you, where do you see this going? Yeah, I, you know, look, it's, um, it, it it doesn't really matter what you know coding what language you use the the value of coding is actually the process 
because there's no right or wrong answers. In fact, there's multiple ways to get to an answer. So if you think about challenge-based learning, the process of coding, the process of challenge-based learning, and the process of, of, of entrepreneurship, starting your own company, it's the same process. So I believe kids need to be uh, introduced to coding, not for coding's sake, but to understand the process, the learning process, the challenge that coding uh, provides. Um, we ran a project in Brazil uh, in 10 universities, 100 students each volunteered, and they turned out the original goal was an application development environment. So the kids had to create apps, get them in the app store. What it turned out to be was an entrepreneurial class because it turned out that the process to write an app and put it in the store was the same process if you were starting a company and solving a problem. So mm-hmm. I'm in favor of coding, not that we have to, you know, uh, everybody is going to be a coder in the long run. Although if you think about Internet 2.0 and the connecting of things, somebody's going to have to write some code. But more people are going to have to understand to be able to communicate to those people who are writing the code. Um, my son, my oldest son, who you read about in the book, who was four when Steve gave him his first computer, uh, went on to University of Pennsylvania as an engineering major, minor in design, and he had his own column and a daily pen. So he could code, he could design, and he could write. When I went to school, they said, you're either left brain or right brain. You need to make a choice. You're either analytical or creative. That's not the case today. And uh, so when he got his first job over at um, – uh, he got the job as a designer. And so he designed a web page. In fact, his first job was to design uh, uh, eBay's web pages. Um, but so he designed a page, and the, and the engineer said, well, we can't implement this. And Chris said, well, look, come back after lunch, and I'll give you the code. So, you know, he, he, he could stand up for his designs because he knew he could, he could code it. So we're going to have to communicate with people who code. Uh, but the most important thing I think about coding is actually the learning process. The, to um, You're given a set of inputs. You've got you to visualize your structures and the relationships between those structures, and you've got to produce something at the end. Uh, that's where the real value is over simply being given something to memorize. I hear you're you're also a very big advocate for uh, personalized learning, and that's something that we're exploring here at the agency in terms of the work we're doing with blended learning and personalized learning. Um, can you talk to us more about how you think technology can help us personalize education for students? Yeah, I think the uh, the real challenge there, and, and I point this out in in the, in the book, and un- under, unfortunately, I couldn't put all of my graphs and keynote slides into the book. But, the, but I do have a rewiringeducation.com website where a, a lot of this material is. But the example that I use is the fifth grade class in Chicago, Illinois, where one student is reading at the eighth grade level, one student reading at the first grade level, and there's actually six different reading levels in the classroom. The time that it would take the teacher to find the appropriate learning activity for those six levels is more than 40 hours a week. So what we do is we teach to the average. And, you know, Dr. Rose has an outstanding book called The End of Average, where he theoretically and scientifically approves there is, proves there is no such thing as average. So I see technology 
not as a roadblock to the teachers, which I think in, in many cases it has been, but as um, as, a, as a pedagogical infrastructure that would tell the teacher what each individual student needs based on the result of, say, the Northwest Educational Assessment Test, and then to deliver to that student the appropriate learning activity. Uh, an example of that is probably uh, eSparks work with iPads, where they look at the they, – they basically vetted all of the educational apps in the App Store, tied them to standards, uh, and look at the student's results of the test and deliver the student if they're – if they're weak in fractions, they'll deliver the student an app in fractions. The student will spend one hour a day. At the end of the week, they will have to create something. Remember the key word, create, that shows their mastery of that. And the test scores have gone from 29% to 68% in one semester by delivering that student exactly what they need. And that, that, that not only the gaps, but, the, but challenges the student, you know, that eighth grade reader. He needs to go farther. Um, and so that's where I see technology coming to really be uh, a, a player, if you will, in the, in the overall ecosystem of learning, empowering the teacher to know what each individual student needs. Yeah, and I think some of it comes back to what you were talking about earlier in terms of uh, pedagogical practice and just general mindset and things. We Teachers are, are often used to that uh, teaching to the middle approach, and then maybe they'll do a little bit for the higher and lower kids, but it's about you know changing what our expectations are for, for all students and, and not grouping them together in, in too wide a, wide a swath of students. Yeah, and I think that's kind of why we use the word rewiring. You know, I think there's, you know, there's, there's, there's one train of thought that says blow the school up, and start over, you know, and then there's the other school of thought that says, well, they treat the school as a software program and they say, we're going to patch this. We're going to patch that. We're going to do a class of 20. We're going to add this. We're going to do that. And neither one of those have really produced the results that I think that our kids are, deserve. Uh, and that's why we use the term sort of rewiring. Um, but I think, you know, the holy grail is is personalized learning. And it, unfortunately, the word personal tends to connotate one individual rather than collaboration. But um, mm. I think the pedagogy is really a collaborative environment. And think about, you know, when you go to work, you're yeah. you're going to work on a team. You've got to work, you know, you got to you got to understand, you know, interpersonal relationships. Uh, your piece of the project is only a piece of it. All these pieces come together. To solve the problem. We didn't build the iPhone by one person. So um, kind of wrapping up the conversation, John, um, we do have a lot of districts here in Iowa that um, are starting to heavily invest in technology and um, are even starting to replace devices that maybe have been in place for a while. And there's always a lot of conversations around the pros and cons of different devices and but at the end of the day, you know, the device is only part of this equation. What do you think are some important questions or talking points for schools that are um, looking to heavily invest in their technologies? Yeah, I think they have to stop looking at the device as the end all. And they have to start looking at the ecosystem, the learning ecosystem. Because it's not about distributing readily available content. 
It's about putting that content in a relevant, creative, collaborative challenge. And that's going to, you know, it's not rocket science. It's just new. So that's going to take professional development of our teachers being exposed to the to the new technologies. You know, I didn't even talk about technology in the book until what? Chapter 11 or 12. You know, mm-hmm. we talked about motivation, intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation. Um, and, I, you know, we don't look at it that way. I, I think a lot of, you know, I did an original study back in 2002 and, and found out that, you know, most superintendents um, obviously did not speak IT. And so they delegated a lot of the learning activities in the school, or at least the support of those learning activities, to the IT department. And uh, the administrative needs for an IT infrastructure are quite different than the learning uh, requirements of an IT instructor. So um, we've got to stop looking at technology as as a lockout spec and simply saying, okay, if I buy, you know, a thousand iPads, then I could check. I've got technology in my school. They may even they may not even be open. I know of schools that that bought you know some some cheap technology and never opened the boxes. Um, so they they really have got to look at the overall ecosystem the and you know the the pedagogy that they need to deliver in the, in the classroom because uh, it's not about just the box. It's about how that box operates in this in this learning ecosystem. Uh, professional development is key. Um, I spoke to some legislators in Florida, and um, they hadn't funded any professional development, and yet they're asking their teachers to keep up with the students. Um, you know, it's kind of ironic that in the book I I have as one of the forthcoming technologies holograms. And yet my son, Christopher, who's now 44 years old, did his eighth grade project on holograms. <laughs> uh, okay. So, you know, how do we expose the teacher to augmented reality? How do we expose the teacher to these new technologies that are going to find their way into education? And I don't believe education is going to change top down. I believe mm-hmm. it's going to change bottom up as parents like yourselves start to see what's available outside the school and, and, you know, and, and then knock on the school door and say, well, why don't we have a, a, a 3d lab? Why don't, why, why don't we, um, here's a piece of software that's got 2000 augmented reality lessons in it. How come our kids aren't being exposed to this? Um, my goal in, in, in prayer really is I'd like to, I've um, formed a nonprofit organization called BeyondSchool.com, and my my dream is to provide a challenge-based learning uh, curriculum free to those students that are in Haiti, that are in India, that are in Africa, that are in rural parts of of, of our state, uh, as a way of simply exposing uh, what can be done with technology and a new pedagogy. Mm. I, I think that's a great answer, John. I mean, I'm going to say it's also refreshing to say that, uh, yeah, it's not just about the device. We have to go beyond the device, like you said, and, and look at those other things. So thanks for sharing that. Not a problem. Not a problem. In fact, you know, I've 
probably started most of my presentations with the fact that, hey, I'm going to be 71 years old. Um, you know, I don't need to be working. I'm working because not to sell boxes, but to change the learning environment. I have 16 grandkids, by the way. And, <laughs> uh, and, and all of them are smarter than the school wants to recognize. And I think that's probably true for most students in the school. Still got some skin in the game then with those 16 grandkids. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very definitely. So, John, can you tell us where can people go to learn more about the book and the work that you're doing? You mentioned some of your websites, but do you want to tell us a little bit more in detail about where they can follow your work? Well, the book, you know, book is available on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also still speaking. Um, I'm no longer an employee of Apple, but uh, I do have five or six state talks, Oklahoma, Montana, Florida, South Carolina, still to, that I've committed to. Um but we've also created a website called rewiringeducation.com where we've tried to collect, uh, you know, Steve Jobs's, uh, uh, what does he think about education? What does Waz think about education? What do, what do other people in the world think about education? And, and collect those, a set of resources, some of the slides that are in my, uh, you know, verbal presentations that I wasn't allowed to put in the book. So, I think between the book and rewiringeducation.com and all the references that we reference in that on that website should help people. And remember, the last chapter, it's a call to action, right? It's, it's Gandhi's quote, be the change. So let's start a conversation on how do we improve, you know, how do we provide a, an environment where our students will, in fact, reach uh, their potential and will, in fact, be the ones that create uh, you know, new new industries, uh, new opportunities for our society. Well, thank you so much, John, for coming on the show. We really appreciate having you here and um, listening to your thoughts. And we couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate the opportunity. And like I said, let's 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 be the change. Thanks, John. You bet. So I think that's about all we have time for today. No tech nuggets today, Mindy. No, I got to get back to the pool. (laughs) (laughs) You're on the clock. (laughs) So before we finish, we should uh, probably say that this is time of year when we do take our annual summer break from the podcast. Mindy's uh, desperate to get back to the pool. Yes. (laughs) We're going to unplug a little bit and come back in August. We already talked about our first episode back is going to be our ISTU tech Tech nugget. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll make up for the lack of tech nuggets today with like a whole episode. ISTU nugget episode. Of nuggets. Yes. Yes. And uh, resume normal service at that point, I guess. So if you see us at ISTU, please come up and uh, say hi. Mindy will buy your drink. (laughs) I probably will. Hey. (laughs) What? No. No. Mindy won't. Okay. This is a professional show. We can't talk about that. No. A big thanks to Jan Couch for joining us on the show today. The book Rewiring Education is available in all good bookstores and is definitely an interesting read. Very quick. Very easy to get into if you're looking for something else to add to your summer reading list. I am at Team Carney on Twitter and Jonathan is at Jonathan Wiley. Our team account is at D-L-G-W-A-E-A. And you can use our hashtag EdTechTakeout to take the show. If you prefer, you can send us an email to podcast at gwaa.org. So until next time. This has been the EdTech Takeout. We hope it hit the spot. 
For more information on today's episode, please visit dlgwaea.org slash podcast. 